Welcome to Japan on Fire episode 33 on the White Snake Enchantress. Japanese studio Toei makes the first feature anime in color and turn to Chinese folklore for their supernatural romantic tale. In this episode, we therefore examine 1958's The White Snake Enchantress, also known as Panda and the Magic Serpent. My name is Kennedy, and with me to break it all down is uh, Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen podcast, who perhaps could watch this with his kid. It wasn't the uh, Kenshiro stuff, this one, right? No, yes, indeed. It was a very family-friendly film and a first watch for me, so I'm happy to be here to talk about it. Hey, did you had the DVD, but you had not watched it yet? I know that's a shocking thing for us people who just seem to hoard DVDs, but I think you showed me that you had the DVD, but I would have bet like a dollar that you watch this yearly or every other year. No, it's one that I picked up after I think you had talked about a long time ago going back and kind of revisiting some uh, early toy animation. And I just went back and looked at the filmography and, you know, or certain titles to start with, and this was among them. And then I started to kind of look for the availability, not readily available over here in the States. Um, so I had to go with the German release, which I think we'll talk about a bit later. All English-friendly German release, though, uh, thankfully, on all uh, fronts, um, language and in terms of uh, the subtitles so um, uh, and and it's now being brought out in uh, in high definition and all of that so it's been remastered and kept in circulation at uh, any rate uh, we're going to talk of this first the last episode it was the first feature anime but in black and white going back to 1945 and war propaganda this isn't war propaganda and if it is it's super well hidden but uh, it was not like this was preceded by, presented by the Imperial Navy, the White Snake Enchantress. <laughs> like it wasn't that case as uh, was the case with uh, Momotaro Sacred Sailors. So uh, we don't need to uh, don't need to talk about um, uh, the politics of it all uh, for this one. At any rate. We're going to get to it. Uh, first, some brief contact information. This is Japan on Fire, and uh, we are located on podcastonfire.com, along with uh, all the other shows on the Podcast on Fire network. Japan on Fire isn't exclusively anime, but uh, currently we, we're doing a series of firsts. Uh, I've um, only gone... I have one more sort of planned episode in terms of firsts. Um, I'm sure you can do many. But obviously, you, you can also do a, a special on... For instance, the first original video animation. Because uh, that's a sort of um, milestone as well. And that's uh, that's Dallas, the Mamoru Oshii uh, OVA. So uh, somewhere down the line, we're going to do that as uh, one of these uh, first uh, themed episodes. Uh, and I kind of like that. And it's uh, nice to revisit uh, and watch some of these firsts for the first time personally as well uh, but uh, we also can be contacted uh, by email podcast on fire at google mail.com uh, if you've seen the white snake enchantress uh, do let us know uh, what you thought of it and if you like uh, the toy animation sort of choices and style we'll discuss obviously what their other output that was like I, I have a sort of soft spot for toy because they they didn't turn to um, all japanese stories all the time necessarily they looked for global sources and they certainly did here with uh, the uh, Chinese folktale uh, uh, source of this one but uh, we'll get to that uh, contact us on our social media we have, we have handy buttons leading to our Facebook presence, our Twitter feed you can click a button to reach our iTunes feed and subscribe leave a star rating and even a comment that would be very much 
appreciate it. And uh, or you can also click the little Instagram button because we have an Instagram account. No podcast on fire network selfies on there, but uh, some relevant art and things like that. And we obviously plug our shows over there on Instagram. And uh, I write about a variety of uh, Taiwanese and uh, Hong Kong movies on my site, SoGoodReviews.com. And my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. And uh, that's pretty much uh, me. Uh, I always make you do this, even though you might uh, want to stab me for like, don't mention my podcast archive. But uh, heck, it's a great podcast archive, uh, regardless of when you return to the free of uh, podcasting about uh, Hong Kong movies, new and old. So I'm going to force you to do a plug of your mighty archive. Uh, Yes, you can find it over at uh, concast.com. And the show is called East Screen, West Screen. And it's still there, and uh, we might have new episodes in the future, uh, depending on how things play out. Uh, but for now, you've got a backlog of lots of stuff to listen to. So give it a listen if you like. And uh, let's uh, get into it. Uh, first, I'm going to give you listeners a little rundown of uh, what's to come here in terms of uh, content and sections of the show. Uh, we'll uh, talk of uh, the White Snake Enchantress and how it sort of made it out of Japan and onto American screens. Uh, we'll also include a little production background, uh, a little background of a director. We'll then summarize the original Chinese folktale up to a point because even though you know you might know of it, having seen other adaptations of it, I I, I don't want to spoil it all, obviously. So, uh, And um, we'll also touch a bit more on its Chinese and Hong Kong uh, big screen adaptations um, and such before concluding the episode with a review of The White Snake and Chantress. And timestamps uh, will be available in the show post. So here we go. Again, this is the first anime out of Japan in color. And it was made in 1958 and plot from uh, Wikipedia. Uh, Shu-chan, a young boy, once owned a pet snake in Westlake until his parents forced him to give her up. Years pass and during a violent storm the snake magically transforms into a beautiful princess Bainyang. Bainyang finds Shu-chan but the lovers are separated by a local monk, Fa Hai, who believes uh, Bainyang is an evil spirit. Shu-chan's two panda pets, Panda and Mimi. I don't think they were both pandas. <laughs> one panda, one squirrel. No, one's a red panda. Right. Ah, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Sh- shows you how much uh, I know, because I was even looking at the, the, the animals later in the film. Is that a duck or goose or swan? I wasn't quite sure immediately, because I'm so stupid. Uh, anyway, uh, Shu-chan's two panda pets, Panda and Mimi, tried to find Shu-chan, uh, and uh, that's... The adventure of the movie to via the animal perspective uh, one might say so last episode was our examination of the first feature length uh, anime but uh, that one was uh, in um, black and white and this time it's the first color anime feature film produced by toy and in addition to uh, the title the white snake enchantress it was released in america as panda and the magic serpent and it was uh, actually notable for being one of the first free japanese anime movies to hit north america in the same year in 1961 uh, one month uh, it wasn't the first because uh, the movie magic boy which was released later in japan 1959 magic boy came out in America before Panda and the Magic Serpent. Uh, so so they had a little lineup uh, ready for American audiences. Um, and uh, if the name indeed um, rings a bell, the whole White Snake Enchantress thing, it is indeed an adaptation of the Song Dynasty Chinese folktale legend of, legend of the White Snake, which we've seen adapted in Hong Kong by Choi Hak as Green Snake and later again as the Sorcerer and the White Snake. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll touch on... Uh, 
more of its background and other appearances in media in a bit. Toei, the reason why they went with a Chinese folktale rather than something that the Japanese audiences would know in a heartbeat uh, by a local author, it was a conscious decision by its president, Hiroshi Okawa, who, quote, wanted to strike a tone of reconciliation with the Asian neighbors, end quote. And assigned to direct was a gentleman called uh, uh, Taji Yawashita. Uh, there's also a co-director noted, uh, not on the DVD, but on the Wikipedia entry, uh, Katsuhiko Okabe. And uh, Taji, who is considered a pioneer of Japanese animation. He started out as an animator, but in post-war Japan, he began directing and producing. His 1949 short film, The Animals Play Baseball, is apparently quite a famous short film. And his company... Around the time, you know, in the 50s, was absorbed by Toei, and hence he uh, he was absorbed as a process, and he would would go on to direct not just this one, but multiple films for the company, including the mentioned Magic Boy, their Monkey King or Journey to the West adaptation, Alakazam the Great, Arabian Nights, The Adventures of Sinbad, and Jack and the Witch, and uh, that's um, why I mentioned that Toei, at least for a while, but uh, maybe a little bit. Uh, throughout each decade seemed intent to look for literary sources from all over the place for their um, for their animated movies and i don't know if you ever sort of consciously took that in that that was toys direction as a company but i always really liked that um, you know alakazam the great which is the u.s retitle uh, i don't think there's um, a widely spread original english title of it but it is journey to the west and uh, they also did a, uh, I think it's later on, but they did a, a Horsey Anderson tale of sorts. Uh, so they always looked for literary inspirations uh, elsewhere and made that into their own local productions. And I always found that really pleasurable, family-friendly, and um, something I return to frequently, personally. So, I mean, you, you see those titles, you know, The Adventures of Sinbad, Jack and the Witch, blah, blah, blah. Do you have a memory of exploring toy, toys, sort of uh, uh, global adaptations, uh, literary adaptations, or you're still new in the game, so to say? No, I mean, this is an area that I remember vaguely seeing uh, in my youth, uh, although I couldn't exactly tell you where I might have seen them. So uh, having seen... Uh, images or parts of these or maybe them in their entirety and in, in, on some platform but uh, it, I was just too young to to really fully grasp what they were and, and what I was doing um, and then it's it's so it's really nice to have an opportunity now to sort of kind of go back and revisit uh, these titles with with very fresh eyes there's things like this that exist also in uh, the written form and sort of manga form where you have uh, manga versions of very classic western tales some some older and some in some cases remakes and i think as we talked about with uh, the the last uh, momotaro film the thing here that's interesting is that you don't have a sort of full-on anime-esque overtaking of style and tone with regard to the way the animation is being constructed. So it's got a very unique and stylistic look that's very different from what most people expect when they think of Japanese animation these days. This is in the era when that's starting to take shape because you have Astro Boy, aka Mighty Adam, at least in print form, 
going pretty strong around this point. Um, but you wouldn't see an animated version of that, I think, for another three years um, after this comes out. So that style is starting to become popular. It's starting to take shape, but it hasn't really reached uh, the animated stage yet. No, I'm, I'm looking out there on uh, my, my little shelf of uh, Japanese stuff. Uh, uh, one of my favorites that I think is also toy. Uh, the, there's a good chance it is toy because they did a Treasure Island feature anime as well, which holds no surprises, but it's rather enjoyable. And it's uh, around that time they started to animate in, you know, full scope widescreen as well. So it looks so majestic seeing animation in the fullest widest um, format so uh, that's a that's a toy for you i mean i even got um, on local vhs on swedish vhs I, I couldn't find it in english or or japanese uh, they even did a call of the wild adaptation and i've always loved call of the wild ever since i was a kid despite the book being very violent the jack london uh, book so uh, i got like a dracula adaptation too and a frankenstein adaptation so it's, it seems like toy never stopped uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> looking at uh, stuff that wasn't exclusively Japanese, and I find I find that I suppose memorable and relatable in a way. So um, it's quite neat. Uh, again, on the White Snake Enchantress, it was expectedly a large, demanding project, which involved a total of uh, thirteen thousand five hundred and ninety staff, which you can also partly see—not all of them, but par- partly see—in the live-action footage in the film's trailer. The pr- presumably the president of Toy introduces the trailer and says what to expect and here's the grand studio where we produced this epic and uh, he will go on to do that i've seen at least two or three movies with accompanying trailers that involves this toy president the alakazam the great trailer has him interacting with uh, alakazam or the monkey king Know, shaking his hand and then you you see the voice cast as well even though it might be stage footage but still it's it's cool to see the behind the scenes workings uh, they, they were proud of uh, what they were com- completing as um, uh, during this period so i think it's very much taking a nod from disney uh, i think if any anybody who's familiar with the all some of the earlier you know disney promos you'd see walt disney come out and sometimes They'd have him talking with characters and, and showing uh, behind the scenes sort of making of, you know, certain animated features. Um, not that that's a bad thing. I mean, it, you know, given the time period and what was going on in Japan, there there was a lot of uh, a lot of adaptation uh, going on in terms of process and procedure and ways of doing things. So I think it was, you know, it, when I saw that little featurette, it was it was really neat to see something like that and go, hey, I kind of recognize what they're doing here, but it's still something that's very much their own. And uh, I don't know what the standard production time was for like a Disney feature around this time, but uh, regardless, uh, the White Snake Enchantress was finished uh, within eight months. So uh, they had a staff and they um, they cranked this out, this uh, uh, 75-minute uh, movie. Uh, among that epic number of staff, uh, you find as an in-between animator a 17-year-old Rin Taro who uh, under that uh, I believe it's a pseudonym, but uh, under that name would go on to direct movies like Harmageddon, Dagger of Kamui, Metropolis, and OVA classics such as Doomed Megalopolis. Um, so, uh, Are you an anime fan to the extent that you you know quite a lot of filmmakers so that's hard for you to distinguish i mean we know miyazaki and takahata but like like when you see rintaro do you like boom 
I remember that guy. I remember that movie. Or, or anime is not about the filmmakers for you as such. No, I mean, there's definitely certain names that if you've followed the industry for a while, the name immediately brings to mind certain titles and Rintaro is, you know, one of them. You've, you've got a multitude of others too, depending on where your genre tastes lie, um, whether it be it anime or manga. Um, and everybody has their, their fan favorites. And Rintaro is somebody who certainly, uh, you know, worked on quite a few uh, feature favorites uh, in in my filmography, the stuff that I really enjoy, especially a couple of the Galaxy Express 999 films. You know, uh, as you mentioned, he went on to do uh, OVA stuff, including I think he did a Captain Harlock title and a Final Fantasy title um, and, uh, among those. So, uh, yeah, he's definitely out there as somebody who I think uh, anime fans, it's it's a name they would certainly recognize. And and he, 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 he does that thing that at a certain point, a person can do in their career when they just, you know, give themselves a single name label, you know, because they've made enough fame for themselves that they can do that. So, uh, perhaps he was not quite at the level of uh, being able to take off his name entirely like uh, Prince was able to do at a certain point. But, you know, uh, there you have it. Directed by Symbol. I was chatting with um, someone the other day. Um, they they said, "Oh, I've seen the Steven Seagal movie where he fought Ken Lowe. So I clicked on it, and uh, it's one of the early two thousands one, and it was directed by what was it? Mink? Like uh, <laughs> n- not even capitalized, like uh, small letters M I I N K. And I was like, "What a serious f! <laughs> like, <laughs> who who needs to have that attached to the Steven Seagal movie?" You know, don't just use your damn name. Like, I'm, I'm making art with Steven Seagal. I'm mink. Come on. You don't say Hong Kong directors who did Steven Seagal movies uh, put, put a spin on their names. You didn't say Ching Su Dong uh, change, <laughs> change it to, like, uh, dual deaf guy. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I don't know. It's strange. Um, the film Whitesnake Enchantress, I did enjoy uh, honors of some sort. I didn't find specifics at the Vin- Venice Children's Film Festival in 1959. But despite tailoring the film seemingly after the Disney formula to a degree, the 1961 American release as Panda and the Magic Serpent was considered a letdown financially. So uh, there is that, but it has survived, obviously. Uh, again, going back to the source material, the Chinese folk tale of it all, I, I thought it would be suitable to give you a little summary of it. Um, uh, I mean, it's been frequently available in media, such as film and opera and TV series, but uh, still, uh, I wanted to summarize it, uh, but without spoiling the entire, the entire scope of it and the ending and all of that. So and names would probably be maybe slightly different between uh, movie adaptations and the summary I found. But uh, anyway, the basic story beats concerns uh, uh, Lu Dongbin, one of the eight immortals who disguises himself as a vendor in Hangzhou. He sells immortality pills to a young boy, either by mistake or intentionally. I couldn't quite understand that. But uh, those pills make uh, the boy vomit. Uh, he vomits into a lake where a white snake spirit uh, eats the pills and gains 500 years of magical power. She therefore is indebted to the boy called uh, Shushan. And the white snake has been practicing Taoist magical arts in order to gain immortality, as has a tortoise spirit who becomes jealous of the white snake after this uh, incident with the pills. The green snake comes into the picture since the white snake in the disguise of a woman uh, buys the green snake uh, 
from a man who was about to cut out its uh, goal and sell it and, and therefore a sort of close sister-sister bond is created between Green Snake and White Snake. In the White Snake Enchantress there's no mentions at all of um, of Green Snake, but it's part of the story and it turns up elsewhere, so that's why I'm uh, mentioning it um, here. And uh, the story cuts to quite a few years later and uh, the White and Green Snake trans- transform themselves into the two women Bai Su Qian and Chao Qing respectively. And during this time the former meets the boy who inadvertently gave her her powers and they fall in love and open a medicine shop together. Uh, the Tortoise Spirit has accumulated enough powers to take human form as well. And uh, he takes the form of a Buddhist monk called Fahai. So that's where the Buddhist monk uh, comes in. And he, aim- he aims to break up the marriage between Bai Su Qian and uh, Shu Chan, uh, the boy. And uh, he tricks the boy into uh, serving his wife a particular festive wine that instead reveals her true form as a white snake. And uh, this then kills her husband out of shock. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, the snake spirits uh, travel to a mountain and steals a magical herb that restores Shu Chan back to life. And uh, love in his heart remains, despite knowing of the true white snake nature of his wife. Uh, there's various attempts subsequently by the tortoise spirit to separate the two. Green snake Xiao Qin fights with the tortoise spirit uh, on behalf of the couple. And the story expands to the degree that it adds a child into the mix of a child of Shu Chan and Bai Su Qian, so a human snake child, if you will. This all is the, this child is probably uh, you know the object for harm and there's vengeance in this tale as well. So uh, they, they add a drama throughout it. It's worth noting that apparently alterations did take place along the way as the story was uh, published. Uh, Bai Su Qian was a name that was created for the white snake at a later point, for instance. Uh, and uh, I suppose you can interpret the story and intentions of each character differently, um, depending on the reader you are, but maybe throughout the alterations that changes a little bit uh, because uh, it, see, it seems like it's changed from being a simple tale of good and evil with the Buddhist monk again trying to save uh, Shu Chan's uh, spirit, but then again, is he true? Is he evil? Is he good? Even this movie makes us, you know, sit up and uh, question whether his intentions are good or bad. So it, it's it's a story that um, has gone in different uh, directions, it seems. And uh, that was the same in theater and film and television in other media. That that story direction has been open for interpretation and redesign, if you will. And uh, you know, even the Green Snake Xiao Qing has been portrayed as a treacherous antagonist rather than friend and confident. So, confident. Again, the Buddhist monk is more sympathetic in other versions rather than vindictive. Uh, so, so yeah, there, there is more to the story, but I wanted to keep it spoiler-free. Uh, so, so again, it has been adapted numerous times, uh, both in opera form, but also in films, with the earliest production um, that I could find uh, coming out of China in 1939 as The Legend of the White Snake. A Toho Shaw Brothers co-production called The Legend of the White Serpent uh, was the first of Toho's special effects films to be shot in color, although the Japanese production wrote Dan was released the same year, so um, I guess uh, uh, 1956 in this case was the year that Japan made the leap uh, in terms of uh, special effects and uh, and in color. Uh, Shaw Brothers produced a Huang Mei opera themselves in 1962 as Madame White Snake, and again Choi Hak directed Green Snake in 1993. That uh, story-wise, um, apparently does things more from Xiao 
Ching's perspective, i.e. the green snake. But um, that's the note I found. I didn't have time to rewatch watch um, the movie. But, but I'm gonna, because uh, I like green snake. It's quite a visual treat. Uh, so before we go on to the, the actual 2011 movie that I'm curious about, because I'm, I'm, I have a feeling you've seen it, what do you remember spontaneously about green snake? Um, because Choi Hak isn't perfect all the time, but they kind of fired on the visual cylinders at the very least for this one, right? Yeah, I mean, this was a film that was kind of in that heyday period post Chinese ghost story when they were kind of ramping up both the visuals and the sort of the action piece, set pieces. And it's one that visually, you know, as with many Choi Hark films, there, there are a great number of visuals that are burned into my brain. I don't remember that much about the story other than it doesn't really follow the the narrative of the original tale. <laughs> very, very closely, but not much does. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but, uh, uh, green snake is, is one that I think is kind of a must watch for any Hong Kong cinema fan, particularly for any Choi Hark fan. There's a lot of subtext to it. Uh, but again, most of that has left my memory, um, in place of the, just the very striking visuals, the sensuality that he really throws in there between, uh, the the two leads and their exploration of humanity. There's there's a great almost Bollywood esque kind of uh, dance number that he kind of sexies up between uh, the dancers and uh, and the leads. And of the remakes I've seen since then, there's not been anything that's really said to me. I want to go back and rewatch that um, as much as uh, Tsui Hark's Green Snake. Yeah, I think uh, those views. Uh align uh, well with mine i mean i i think i heard that oh he does political subtext in this one and i'm you know pretty much the stupidest viewer ever so i i can't appreciate that unless it's put on front street um you know the wolf warrior 2 style you know what i mean <laughs> it's, uh, mm-hmm. then, then i'll get it but uh, i i i thought it was uh you know technically this leap forward as you said but uh, there was some complexity in there within the visual palette but i think that's if you stay away from it for a couple of years that's probably what stays with you most uh, is the visual style and this and the impact of the sensuality and uh, that may but, but i know there's more there it's just that uh, it doesn't stick with me sort of verbatim the entire exploration the thematic exploration but it's rather the uh, wild and creative uh, visual mind of Choi Hark that uh, sticks uh, with me and uh, I mean there's probably some special effects in there that are more experimental than uh, successful uh, the reveal of the snakes there's a magic crane in there and he also produced a movie later called the magic crane and there's some ropey CGI but uh, I, I never thought that was truly de- like uh, detracting from from the story it's not like it's a uh, puppet where you see here you know the, the strings and all of that like we did our best if you want to talk ropey cgi uh just wait until we get to um uh sorcerer and the white snake <laughs> which is a film that says here hold my beer <laughs> i'll show you some ropey cgi let's transition into that because I, I'm, I'm not sure now did he direct that or was the was it someone else a director of a sorcerer and the white snake yeah 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 it was wasn't it uh, let me look it up uh, so as for The Sorcerer and the White Snake uh, from 2011, uh, starring uh, Jet Li and uh, who else was in it? Uh, Charlene, uh, Charlene Choi, among other people. It sounds like, but I haven't seen it, that, that it is uh, riffing on the same folktale. So did it do that well or uh, 
was it a fans of uh, CG spectacle with uh, Jet Li and crew, or this was um, wrong-headed in some shape or form? Well, I hate to say that anything is is wrong-headed. Um, I, it's perhaps not as wrong-headed as the use of uh, uh, Leslie Chung songs in uh, some of the remakes they've done in the mainland, but. Uh, like those remakes, like the you know uh, Chinese Ghost Story and Bride with White Hair remake uh, that they've done, they here too just tended to focus on the visuals more than anything else. And I think the problem with CGI, um, unlike practical effects, I guess in some cases practical effects run run into this problem too. But CGI tends to really date things by the year they were done because a year later, two years later, five years later, it's already, the technology has already surpassed itself so much um, in terms of how things get represented, how they get uh, rendered. So going back to look at these films that are so CGI-laden, um, they they don't hold up. And then when you've already got a pretty weak story going in because you want to sort of show off fancy visuals, it's just ultimately disappointing. And even more so than if you got to see it, you know, in the cinema when it first first comes out. So I, I think of the remakes for these classics or sort of, you know, 80s to 90s Hong Kong films that were more laden with practical effects and striking imagery. The These remakes that came out of the mainland were all disappointing, but Sorcerer and Whitesnake, from my memory, was the most disappointing of those remakes. Maybe needed a uh, Choi Huck, as a matter of fact, because he, he his grasp on 3D and and the pace that comes with it is not necessarily off in my eyes. I've warmed to it, like I've even finished that Taking of Tiger Mountain movie, believe it or not. Uh, so, may, so maybe this needed a Choi Huck. It was directed by um, Ching Su Dong. Again, if you haven't seen it, I wouldn't say it's not worth your time. I just think that uh, if you're somebody who's like us is sticking with that uh, generation of films where practical effects were dominant. Even if those practical effects may not hold up well by today's standards, I think that uh, these newer films, they just don't quite get it there. They don't get it done. As far as some more recent uh, big screen ventures uh, of the Chinese folktale, uh, we find a 2019 movie out of mainland China called White Snake, And this was an animated movie. And uh, so I think uh, you defo sat down to watch this. So how was it in terms of entertainment, animation, its take on the story? Uh, I mean, was it all a children's friendly type of time as well? Uh, well, I thought it was going to be children's friendly, but uh, <laughs> whoops! <laughs> I took my seven-year-old to watch this because this is coming out in 2019 at the tail end. Uh, 2019 was the year that also gave us the animated NASA film, which just did gangbuster business in uh, in the mainland. And I had taken her to see that previously as well. And we both came out loving that. Um, so I took her to this thinking, hey, that you know this is you know this is them uh, trying to do more of the same, you know, kind of kind of take a classic folktale and you know do a Pixar-esque style or DreamWorks style 3D CGI approach to it and it'll be kid friendly. Not exactly. Uh, <laughs> if we can say that there was perhaps some, you know, sexiness in the Green Snake film, you know, you you would not call that. I mean, that wasn't a Category Three film, 
But um, with the a level of sexiness, implied sexiness and violence in that film, you might think twice before taking your taking your seven year old to, to see that, right? So here too, some of the character designs have a certain sexiness to them. I would say that I was kind of like, wait a minute, uh, what are we watching? And there's actually a a scene that uh, in the film that uh, we would call a sexy time scene. <laughs> I mean, it's not a Category 3 sexy time scene, but it is very much, uh, you know, implied there. And I'm like, uh, am I going to have to explain something to my daughter when we get out of this movie? I don't think she remembered it because, you know, it goes, it's 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 very brief. It's, you know, it's not like a, you know, more than uh, even 10 seconds even. But uh, I was kind of like going, okay, wait, uh, what are we doing? Uh, where's the rating? Uh, <laughs> did I miss something? So, yeah, it's uh, it's not something I think, you know, for teenagers, it would be fine. Uh, but I was a little bit taken aback. Were you able, therefore, to even focus on if it did the adaptation well or in an entertaining way or you were just sweating bullets? No, I mean, once that scene passed and then there's then it gets to the end and there's some uh, there's some violence to it, too. Then I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is not the kind of bombastic uh uh, silly kung fu fighting of kung fu panda or even you know let, let, let me stop you there speaking of nasha that's inherently violent it involves a suicide so you're a, you weren't you like doubtful of the fact that oh, shit maybe they'll show the suicide in that one i'm sure they didn't but weren't you like a little bit on guard in terms of nasha i was but uh i also wasn't because of what i had seen in the trailer led me to believe that they weren't gonna necessarily go in that direction um so i don't want to say more than than that for fear of spoilers for people who haven't seen it. If you if you perhaps seen the Naya battles the Dragon Kings, the original Shanghai animation, uh, the story is quite different, um, and they take it in a, a different direction while keeping a lot of the core elements there. That that's the issue with a lot of these sort of Chinese folk tales. Um, White Snake is considered uh, as one of the four great Chinese folk tales. In that mix is the uh, what's it called? Uh, Lady Mengjiang, which is a very tragic story that I don't think they'd ever make as a cartoon for kids. Um, and then the cowherd and the weaver girl, classic sort of romance, kind of Romeo and Juliet style, you know, lovers can't be together romance kind of story. And of course, the butterfly lovers, which probably ranks a little bit higher than I think White Snake in terms of uh, popularity. So those four tales are considered like these, you know, national treasure, great folk tales and they've been done at least for white snake and uh the butterfly lovers have been done kind of ad nauseum and but the stories are very rarely following the traditional narrative um as it pertains to the literature kind of like mulan right i mean uh we've seen a disney version of mulan We've seen a Jingle Ma version of Mulan. There nope, have been nope, we haven't. And we dramas. shall not see a Jingle Ma <laughs> version of Mulan ever. I haven't seen Mulan, the original Disney animated movie at all, actually. So. Right. Well, there. I mean, there's there, there are a couple of narrative points that serve as kind of the keystones, and then they kind of just go off in different directions with different characters and, and things like that. And I think the same kind of holds true with these tales. So with White Snake, as you kind of broke down, you know, the idea of this snake somehow gaining, you know, magic powers and uh, meeting this, you know, young boy who she then falls in love with, that serves as kind of the basic. And and then there's a monk who gets in their way. And and that serves as the basis 
you know, here for the animated film we're talking about, it serves as some of the basis for the Green Snake adaptation, even less of the basis for uh, the 2019 animated version. Po- case in point, uh, the male protagonist, who, you know, Shushan, who the names kind of remain the same, uh, but in the 2019 animated version, he's a snake hunter. <laughs> he goes around hunting snake demons, you know. So is that going to cause conflict? Yeah. And they do a, they do something with the narrative too, which is almost uh, I would say George Lucas esque <laughs> in some ways, which I won't say more than that. But Misa White Snake. <laughs> in 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 uh, this version, I mean, you don't have uh, the Green Snake character. the The monk character is very often removed from his origins. So as you talked about, uh, Fahoy's character, Fahai's character, Fahoy. Uh, depending on which version you're watching, he starts out as an animal spirit, much like Whitesnake does. And he basically has a grudge against Whitesnake because she was able to surpass him, as the story goes. And so he takes that and he becomes a demon-hunting monk, even though he himself is technically a kind of demon. <laughs> but they kind of cut that off, that that sort of origin story, and just make him a demon-hunting monk. So, you know, you see that in... In this version, you know, he's a a sort of this demon buster character who gets in the way of the love story. Um, And it's typically about the love story kind of overcoming the rigid rules of Dharma or whatever that the monk is trying to enforce. Um, I think that's a part of the Green Snake story. It's a part of the, the Sorcerer and the White Snake story. And it's even a part of the if I mean, if you're really in love with. Whitesnake, there's uh, also a 2019 uh, TV drama, which I think is uh, 36 episodes. It's out on Netflix with subtitles, so you can watch it. And, and even here, too, it's I, I got through the first episode. I don't think I'll be able to watch much more of it because um, it's very TV drama-esque in terms of what they do. But the, the characters have been rewritten. Uh, Shushan is a doctor now, and... Um, you know, uh, White Snake herself is she. At the end of the first episode, she encounters Green Snake, who's leading this band of rogues, and they have, you know, uh, they're they're having a bit of a fight. And so, you know, they just seem to take the character templates and rewrite them every time they want to kind of retell this story. So, you know, like with many myths, like Hercules or or other myths from uh, the West. The, the actual narrative is more of a template than anything else. They they feel free to just play with stuff. And it doesn't seem like it's a mortal sin to rearrange things. You know, it, it seems like uh, it's it's been a little bit open season in terms of how you interpret and what story, story threads you include, which story threads you exclude, which ones you uh, restructure a little bit. It, it doesn't seem like it's... Uh, you're going to be called out on on that fact, which which I suppose is a nice sense of freedom, uh, and could could generate a variety of stories rather than the same thing adaptation once more. You know, there's even a low budget Hong Kong movie set in modern times called Phantom of Snakes, I believe. Again, it might just use the notion that these two ladies are snakes, but but they are in modern times and. At one, there's a scene in it with uh, with with Jade Lung and Cecilia Yip walking down the street. 
just slivering like snakes essentially okay they, they've got uh, they've got sass they've got uh, they, they've got the walk down and it looks so partially unintentionally funny but also they, it's game actresses on screen there uh, acting out uh, this uh, supernatural tale but in modern times uh, so uh, little known movie but I, but I did enjoy it for a novelty factor of, uh, it's, it's essentially this folk tale in modern times even though it might not have used at all that much in terms of story content uh, from it so there, there, there is a well to tap into Let's move over to a movie review, and uh, let me hand over to you for some brief opinions. First of all, of uh, White Snake Enchantress, this uh, this uh, first time watch after having owned the damn DVD for like a decade. I mean, it's I think it's enjoyable. I, I was a little bit taken aback about how much of the story isn't actually about the leads. It's about uh, the characters of Panda and Mimi, kind of going off and uh, having a little side adventure of their own that kind of, you know, it, it kind of pays off by the end in some ways. Um, but I was kind of expecting a little bit more focus on uh, the main characters. So I, it was interesting, but also a little bit distracting, I think, that uh, there wasn't that much focus on, on the two of them. Like the U.S. title um, reflects the structure of the movie in a way, because it's a panda. And the magic serpent. Yeah. Although why they throw kind of Mimi under the bus, because Mimi's <laughs> always there with Panda. I guess because Panda's like the 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 badass of the, the pair, as they prove <laughs> at a certain point in the film. But it's I think it's really interesting in terms of the sort of aesthetic look of it. Uh, because, again, you're not looking at traditional Japanese anime style, which hasn't come into its own yet. So they are really borrowing a lot from different artistic aspects. The first, I want to say, five minutes of the film are done in a way of they're, they're kind of setting up the backstory and they're using uh, almost what I would consider frames from shadow puppets. Yes. Um, which is, an, a, you know, sort of a popular traditional form of storytelling in Southeast Asia so that already has a kind of interesting look and setup to it. And I, you can see this done in modern forms of animation too, um, where they kind of do a callback to, to that kind of storytelling. We even partly saw it, at least if you, if you take the, like the literal vis- um, visual of silhouettes, you, you sort of saw that in Momotaro in the backstory of uh, the Dutch East India Company, coming to Ogre Island and taking over so it but 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 they used animation they didn't use these static frames uh, and and that's a design choice in this one that well there, there's no movements uh, if a character moves from left to right or changes his uh, if if he turns it's just a hard jump cut uh, by design in this one so there's no animation for a couple of minutes here but they are blending in uh, elements of color into it so if you've seen like sort of traditional shadow puppetry it's very often just kind of silhouette on a on a bright screen but here they've kind of ingrained uh, some color into the pieces so it's a very kind of interesting hybridization um, of art that they're they're doing in that beginning and it's it's not distracting at all it it, like it it's only being used for the backstory and then it very quickly shifts gears into uh the main story structure Well, well what it does too is actually from a technical point it starts out in 1.33 1.33 aspect ratio during this shadow puppet intro and then when that's done it expands to widescreen animation 
which I thought was a neat little uh, artistic statement that we're not only bringing color, we're bringing the white frame. It's not a wide 235 widescreen, they're not there yet, but uh, they're expanding the the frame in a neat way. Let me get my brief opinion uh, into, I I kind of agree, Uh, your views are pretty much uh, aligned with mine. I mean, it's not lacking qualities overall, it's an enjoyable film, but I, I attach to it for reasons of that it's movie history because we're sort of familiar with the story that have resulted in the Hong Kong films we mentioned uh, but it, but it's also well made it's quite uh, a lovely leap to color for Japan and uh, but it springs to life more because I also had a little problem with uh, the structure of keeping White Snake out of it but it springs to life more distinctly during the last 20 30 minutes where, where I think the more more alluring visuals take place and the story gets into um a little bit uh, more uh, not overdrive but uh, it it starts to really put some peril into the story where you can engage in that uh, so, so but but it, it was never frustrating as such speaking of the animals i don't know how I, I mean we're all familiar with disney but in a way i'm not i haven't continually throughout my life watched a lot of disney movies but is there a case you think paul if you had to take on this that Considering we have talking and singing animals in this one, would that could you draw a straight line? You think to oh, it, it they're totally riffing on Disney because why wouldn't you? Like uh, it, it's us, we have done nothing, and it's Disney. <laughs> you know, so it, there, there, there's not like two hundred studio entities to be inspired by. You know, but by that point, uh, Disney ruled the world seemingly. So, so what do you think? Is that uh, Japan's way of um, playing to the audience that uh, that were familiar with the with the Disney movies by that point? Well, I think it's. I mean, Disney was the elephant in the room, uh, quite literally, in terms of animation and cinematic animation. And I think that there have been numerous scholars in Japanese anime who've tied the look of what we consider contemporary anime back to uh, early Disney films like Snow White and especially how the the designs of not Snow White herself, but the dwarves were done um, in terms of their very sort of large eyes and successive films that followed um, having a very strong influence on key people who would come to, you know, develop titles that went on to shape how manga and anime ended up looking. For me, I mean, I think that the idea of having this sort of side venture with uh, Panda and Mimi and then ultimately their friends, it, it wasn't really Disney-esque as much. I felt that part of it was very much Jap- Japanese at the time, uh, kind of playing to Japanese children. You know, if we go back to the Momotaro film, uh, the idea of all the the troops kind of being uh, anthropomorphized animals, everyone except for Momotaro himself, and then later um, the enemies that they're fighting, which were these foreigners, but they were kind of these ogre characters. The majority of characters you have are these animals. And in some ways, they're these very cutesy, you know, looking animals. They're bunnies and, and things. And so here, too, you have uh, pandas and, you know, even the animals that are a bit more devious still have a bit of a kind of cuteness to them, kawaii-ness, you might say, uh, in Japanese. Um, and I think that's that's very much a, a trait that they're trying to ingrain. I, it'd be too easy to say, well, you know, Disney uses animals as supporting characters, and so here they're doing the same thing. I think that's more playing to the audience they're going after than anything else. 
I think in my in my limited view, I I thought like by the time they have a little singing number that then results in them crashing into the roof of the uh, of the whatever building it was and then uh, finding or stealing jewelry. That section when they start to sing and bounce around and have shenanigans that 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 reeked a little off. Well, if there were to be a Disney influence, I guess it's in here somewhere but but it's not like it screams uh we don't we don't know anything so we're just uh, ripping off someone else so so it's not that it's just that uh it, it it's out there they, they, they'd been the king on, on the block for 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 a decade or three by that point in 1950 58 as i look at my notes one area where i did feel there was a pretty strong disney influence is in the final act there's a very large catfish who shows up on the scene he's got a role in the plot but um in terms of the action that's going on in the scene and what's being animated, um, there's a storm that's happening and there's a lot of waves and you have this big massive uh, catfish uh, kind of roiling in the water. And the look of some of the waves and some of the cresting and the splashes that were happening, I was taken back to the earlier Disney film of Pinocchio, which was, I guess, about a decade and a half uh, before this one. But in sort of the third act of that film when Pinocchio encounters the whale, not the narrative parallels, but sort of the ways in which they were technically animating the water and the big waves and some of the ways in which uh, the colors were being used. I, I saw a little bit of a correlation there. I mean, anybody who does art, anybody who studies animation is surely drawing inspiration from lots of other sources. So I don't think it was a case of them uh, copying anything, but I think that, you know, when you see somebody saying, hey, that's, you know, look at how they're animating water, whether it's traditional 2D animation or traditional, you know, 3D animation uh, or contemporary 3D animation, excuse me, people are learning new techniques by seeing how other people have experimented, other technologies are being used to create effects. And so I think there's a natural progression in in that sense as people learn from others and uh, so i think you see some of that going on here the, the movie also uses uh, some different narrative styles um but half abandons it and i'm talking specifically that, that it relies a lot on um, a narrator rather than constant chatter from the characters so for for a good 40 50 percent at least it seems like did this movie has you know non-verbal characters and it's the narrator that pushes it uh, forward it's silent storytelling if you would have uh, cut out the narrator so so it's a lot of them it's a lot of he then heard a and he decided to walk over but he had not seen a beautiful girl like that ever and the animals react silently too because the narrator pushes that forward for a while i thought that was not problematic that that is not fair at all but i was wondering if this is a style you can maintain for 75 minutes or do you need to make it a little bit more lively a little bit more traditional where the characters actually talk and we don't have a narrator regardless if they thought it was problematic and they abandoned it or it was structured like this but by the ending point you know the last 30 minutes or so it is more traditional it isn't reliant on a narrator so uh, i connected to the movie a bit more like that when it was more exciting too and uh, and all the characters in the film could communicate um, 
on their own. Uh, so say, but it is um, interesting uh, how they decide to uh, to push the story forward. Uh, whether this was a common um, tool in Japanese animation at the time, I cannot say. But uh, you, you certainly mentioned it. Um, uh, you, you certainly notice it. How did you find the narration in terms of uh, it fitting naturally into the movie, making the movie flow here in the beginning stages? Uh, so, what was your take, take on that? I do think it was a little bit disjointed in terms of I wasn't really sure at, at times where the focus was. Was the focus on the anim- uh, the, the narrator telling the story? Was it on the animals kind of pushing the story forward? In that sense, it's you're, you're not always sure, you know, who's who you're following and 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 kind of which direction it's going. But I think by the end, it it sort of all tends to come together. It it, it all kind of works out in, in a way. It's unexpected, I would say. It's not very traditional in 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 its approach to getting to that ending. I don't want to spoil it, but I was kind of disappointed with the actual ending because it's like. Panda and Mimi, what the heck? You know, it's that there's that you're going to do that to them (laughs) (laughs) after all the help they just gave you guys. Come on. It's definitely interesting to see how they focus a bit more on the visuals, perhaps than the story itself. Of course, they're going to be paying attention to the animation and the animation of the characters. It's like you mentioned in, in Momotaro, it's a lot more fluid than contemporary Japanese animation is especially there are scenes where the characters themselves are turning, their faces are turning, um, and it's much more fluid than you'd find today. There are also a lot of details thrown in in terms of Chinese-ness in Chinese design. I guess they felt, okay, this is a Chinese story, so in terms of the costuming, in terms of the place setting, we really want to try and evoke that as much as possible, even though, for the most part, Everybody's speaking, um, you know, Japanese. The characters are speaking Japanese. The narrator is Japanese. And, but the look of it, I think it, they do a really good job. The research was there in terms of the villages, the towns that are depicted, the architecture, the buildings, uh, even some of the things that are in and around as place settings, uh, props that characters are using. There's a festival that goes on. Um, there's even a sequence which, uh, as I mentioned, the sort of four great folk tales um, with the butterfly lovers being one of them. There's a sequence uh, that very briefly evokes that very narrative of um, the butterfly lovers with these kind of two butterflies um, showing up on screen. Yeah, very nicely integrated. And there's a lot of attention to detail in terms of trying to create a sense of the the cultural origins of this tale mm, yeah yeah that's the impression i got too and uh, the the animation is good enough where they they can express where that these are expressive humans and uh, that they're that he's enchanted by her beauty and and they do fall in love and that, that there's a connection in there they can communicate it i'm not sure we ever narrated that i was that enchanted by it myself because uh, it, it went on a little bit long and I think disjointed can be the word you apply to it to that the the supernatural romance is not communicated that much from the the animated characters but rather the the narrator but you know it, it contains enough interest you know the romance beats uh, across the supernatural beats at the same time you know and, and it's not overly cutesy either just because it has animals here it's not like the animals do constant 
pratfalls. You know, at, at one point, Panda jumps on uh, two drums and it's not like he uh, steps through the drum and it's stuck on his head and he doesn't know where to walk and then he falls into the water. Wah, wah, wah. They don't um, pad the movie with... Uh, with silliness like that because i think it aims for atmosphere rather and uh, you know there's uh, a fair amount of singing here walking montages in these picturesque uh, environments and it's never hard to follow obviously and uh, and if you have enough interest in the story and the fact that this is uh, the first color anime it, it's very easy to follow and uh, even though it's not knocking knocking you out or anything this first first color anime widescreen because you know it's working its beats it adds the animals uh, a song here and there and uh, the limited dialogue is the chosen style i suppose and sometimes if they're they're not if he's not narrating then they're singing instead and uh, there's nothing wrong with all of that but I, i did find myself enjoying when the movie found the flow where a lot of things are on the line and therefore the narrator doesn't need to have a place in that we can have actual dialogue uh, to communicate uh, the peril and all of that and by the way even if it's disjointed even if you don't like certain sections again it's 75 minutes long so uh, you know it, it has a pleasantness to it and a pleasant pace uh, and and therefore also you don't need to know extensive backstory of the characters either because you 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 attach to the basic premise of uh, Xu Chen and uh, and the white snake and uh, you know, it, it expands uh, from there. But I guess the, the visuals of adding more animals. I mean, I, I mean, I understand it is a section that just means that uh, they're getting their own spin-off movie within the movie. But <laughs> I did find myself laughing at the fact that the, the animals that they meet, like the duck and uh, maybe the pig, they, they're, uh, the, the subtitles say that they, these are the bandits of the awful city that Xu Chen is in. And therefore, they paint on like uh, black uh, black brows on them in order for the duck to look a bit sneaky like it's up to no good and i found myself, I found myself laughing at that like you, you did that to a duck that, that that's kind of ballsy i, I, can't, I can't think of animation history trying to depict the duck as a bandit even the little mice in the in the gang they they kind of have that going on too and you know t- traditionally you think of Okay, it's a cartoon and mice and you know Cinderella. They're gonna come and and be squeaky and nice and help her make her dress or stuff like that. No, these are these are bandit mice and they got attitude. Exactly, dude. Nineteen fifty-eight, dude. So I, I I did like that, but you realize after a while, I guess they're sticking with these and depicting the system of thievery that they have in place in this town that Xu Qian has been exiled. Too. It doesn't look like the worst town in the world. And they have a nice little festival going on at the same time. It takes up a good amount of time as Panda and Mimi are trying to uh, be the, the dominant animals uh, and get the story um, on track again and the fate of Xu Chen and White Snake on track again and things like that. But uh, being short, you, you're never bored, but you realize that um, it's a distinct section of the film and um, that, that wasn't necessarily the expected as opposed out of a white snake adaptation to exclude white snake for uh, such amount of time but um did you find yourself feeling like the movie was in a little bit of deep doo-doo or you found yourself uh, in the sections where you thought it snapped back into place and the focus was aligned again did you find that like section passed quick enough and then um, the last 20 minutes took over and you were in a good place again so to say 
it tends to breeze along, even though it's, you know, it's a little bit unclear at times as to whose, whose story you're following. But that, you know, there, there are moments too, there were, it goes to places that I wasn't expecting. So there's a, there's a point in which Whitesnake, uh, she has to go to the Dragon King to make a plea who apparently lives on Mars. I mean, who knew, <laughs> but there you, there you go. You got to throw some, uh, astrology in there as well. I think there are aspects of it that, Again, I think they were trying to figure out how do we take this story, which is considered really more of an adult style love story, you know, romance genre, and pare it down to be something that's going to appeal to families and to kids as well and, and create that balance. And they weren't quite there with it. I mean, I think they, in the end, as I said, I think it, it's fine, it's entertaining, and it's very interesting as a piece of historical animation but i think that balance wasn't quite as as streamlined as it could have been yeah um, for the storytelling but it, that doesn't make it uh, bad in any way shape or form no not at all and uh, once you get to that last third i found myself being the most involved i've been in the movie and i never had a bad time really with uh, when they add the peril of uh, the buddhist monk waiting until white snake comes out of hiding to to uh, to leap at her and uh, and do what he thinks is right. Uh, the movie communicates that uh, he probably is in the wrong, that she's not evil, but it it's not siding necessarily with the White Snake. Maybe the Buddhist monk has a has a point here. Maybe he's in in the right of trying to squish uh, squash evil, if you will, and and that leads to you know the peril and the danger of it all. That there's a supernatural fight in the skies. Uh, the issue of uh, love versus hate is put on front street and uh, this is well established and it has some of the more arresting visuals you know against those dark night skies uh, that almost looks like live action skies they're probably not but uh, uh, and displays of power like uh, fire and wind and elements uh, like that and white snake changing into her true nature so it's a bit more tighter by this point uh, and while not tremendously engaging but the, the lives on the line and uh, you know humanity lost humanity gained and all of that because it's a compliment uh, accompanied by more arresting imagery I found myself being uh, quite a bit involved during this last uh, s- uh, section of the film and, and, and then it really reshifts to the main characters and the focus on them and their plight and uh, uh, it communicates that clearly too and, and, and it holds some more visual surprises whether supernatural or in the animal gallery including uh the the role that the catfish plays in the story but um you they definitely didn't do all their good stuff at the beginning only and then ran out of ideas i think uh, they they found their ideas they found the sections of the movie where they could apply their storytelling and their visual ideas uh, and that was the 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 last third of the movie so it it really um it found its stride there and uh so so it's good because of that but also because I have a general interest in Japanese anime film history, this becomes sort of a must because of that too. But uh, disjointed, expect that within the storytelling too, even though it's only 75 minutes. Um, so uh, Because the, the, the other toy movies that I, that I remember seeing, Treasure Island and the likes, they, they felt more comfortable, confident, I suppose, um, and technically 
started to evolve and all of that. So in in some ways, it it may represent being a first in many ways, but uh, it's not a shoddy first in any way either. So um, it uh, comes recommended uh, from from my side here, and uh, I guess it's better than the 2011 big booming 3D. <laughs> exercise of it all so uh, how about that like 1958 beats Jet Li in 2011 right uh, well you know it's <laughs> different strokes for different folks for um, sure. I mean I, if we were gonna you know look at it in terms of uh, animation technique I guess you could throw it up against the, the 70s animated version of uh, Fang Shen Bang or Story of Chinese Gods and I think you'd come away from this one you know much more pleased <laughs> <laughs> but again, it really depends on if you are somebody who's just not really into uh, animation, be it 2D or 3D, and live action is only your thing, this might be a bit of a snoozer for you. You might This just might not appeal to you. But if I think if you're somebody who enjoys animation a lot and this is not something that you've seen and you like you know, all the other things going on, the mythological elements, the supernatural elements, um, that this is something that I think you'll get a great deal of enjoyment out of especially too if you can get a hold of uh, one of one of the versions that has like the short little behind the scenes featurette and you can you know see some of that and see some of the the trailers for other films like magic boy and things uh, that were going on at the same time um so i i've actually i've concluded my notes right there so um, anything else uh, you want to say about the, about the film no i think that uh, you know it's it's there it's too bad that uh, we don't have a, a nice sort of international uh box set of films from this era you know like this film and alakazam and uh, uh, magic boy uh, that would be a great you know sort of a a Toei collectors, uh, international collectors edition uh, in HD remastered. But, you know, hey, I can dream. As long as I can see it in some shape or form, then I'm, then I'm happy. A standard definition is uh, is fine. I mean, there, there is a chance that this, at least this, will be brought out because uh, it, it has been restored. It was um, the White Snake Enchantress, that is. Uh, it was screened at the Cannes Film Festival in their classics section in 2019, last year. And a Blu-ray box was, le- was released in Japan in October of that year with a 130 US dollar price tag. And before you start complaining, that's standard in Japan, so don't be greedy little bastards. Just pay up. I know there are no English subtitles on it, but pay up. They put some effort in it, I think, anyway. Being that it has been restored, they even brought out Momotaro on different labels in the UK and the US. I'm hoping that if if there's interest in the first feature anime in black and white, I hope there's new Western interest in the first feature anime in color. So hopefully, at the very least, uh, this one comes out and maybe a bonus... uh, feature in ter- in terms of the um, US version of the film because they, that's shorter so maybe they can find a better print of that so I think there's a, there's some hope to be to be had in terms of uh, getting this uh, out on the world stage again we, we both have and watched uh, the old German DVD that features the movie in Japanese with English subtitles as well as the edited English version known as Panda and the Magic Serpent as a bonus feature uh, they didn't construct it using the japanese print uh, it, it's clearly an older print it's a bit beat up um this dvd is available secondhand but was quite pricey the last time i 
watched uh, uh, Amazon. Uh, this English version, Panda and the Magic Serpent, can be watched on Amazon Prime US, and I expect the print quality to be not restored and uh, all of that, uh, but um, I'm sure it's more than watchable if you want to get the first taste of uh, what this looked like and felt like uh, when uh, screened in um, in English for US audiences. So uh, well, we'll see what happens, but um, it's definitely a bonus version for me. I think uh, I prefer it this way in, in Japanese and in the full 74-minute 74 minute, uh, 74 length. Uh, so that is it. Maybe we'll return to Toei sometime because uh, I, I I greatly enjoy watching movies like uh, Alakazam the Great, which uh, again is the Journey to the West adaptation, but they do it all in one movie pool. <laughs> like it's this 70, 80 minute uh, movie and it seems like they cover Journey to the West and the entire trip to India or whatever in one movie. So uh Go Japan, and uh, and if you watch it in English, you can hear Frankie Avalon sing a couple of songs to you. So um, that's always uh, that's always nice, I suppose. But they 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 are favorites of mine, and they're, they're they're easy watches because it's 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 so lovely that um, they're, they're anything but Japanese uh, in a way. So, uh, but uh, in the meantime, let's uh, let's uh, finish this uh, one off. And for all your podcast on fire network needs including the back catalog of japan on fire go to podcastonfire.com follow the social media links at the top of our website or the social media and any relevant links in the show post for this episode of um, japan on fire so that is me plugged out so if you like paul you can throw out the plug for east screen west screen i mean back in the day were you diligent it's all hong kong or were you like experimenting with doing japanese movies too and talking about anime or what was the sort of genesis point of east screen west screen in that regard i mean initially we were primarily focused on current hong kong cinema when we started way back in the day (laughs) and uh over time uh my main passion is still Hong Kong cinema, but I do love venturing off into uh, the occasional Pan-Asian films. Um, but I have a particular affinity for Japanese animation, although I never really covered it directly on um, on our podcast. I would occasionally uh, mention things that I was watching or a series from time to time. And uh, whenever you know, a crossover would come out. So for example, like we, I think we talked about the live action films for Attack on Titan and for Gantz and uh, stuff like that. Um, So I was always very excited to, you know, have a chance to talk about things that had come from source material that uh, I really enjoyed. So you know, we would branch out from time to time. Did, Did you bring Doraemon to the show? Because that screened in Hong Kong back in the day. One of the things with animation in in Hong Kong is that uh, Japanese animation and animated features that hit the cinema are very much uh, always dubbed. And when they do the dubbing, they don't bother to subtitle them. So early on when I was in uh, Hong Kong, my Cantonese was was, you know, kind of at the beginner level even though cartoon plots are not, uh, anime plots are, 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 you know, especially if you're looking at something like uh, Doraemon, they're not that difficult to follow and make sense of. But um, it, it wasn't something that I, I really wanted to to go and do. Now, I want to say uh, around the time of the live action uh, space battleship Yamato movie, I, I went and saw that uh, without subtitles. 
because I just, you know, that was a piece of uh, something that was classic from my youth that had been translated into live action and I, and I had to see it. And so I powered through that one. And more often than not, live action films will get either a dubbing, but they'll also have the original Japanese usually with uh, both Chinese and English subtitles. But for some reason, they would never do that with uh, the animated features. I guess they just figured, well, it's just going to be for kids. And because you've got kids who have different levels of literacy um, with regard to Chinese, so they wouldn't bother uh, subtitling them necessarily in Chinese even. And they would just go straight for the dub, which kids would you know, easily understand, even from a very young age. So I think that's the approach they usually took with uh, animated features. And sometimes you could wait, and if a title was popular enough, it might get a local disc release that would have both options. But very often, even the disc releases would only have the Cantonese dub option and no subtitle options of any kind. Is it structured like Pokemon, where it's all about collecting and therefore the tie-ins to the toy toys and things like that or, or they're not doing the pokemon so tra- transparency no no it it doraemon predates pokemon i mean i mean yeah there's toys involved um basically doraemon is a a robot cat from the future who ends up with this family and you know it's it's a lot of you know basic morality plays on you know what, doing what is right versus what is not um and Pokemon is kind of this, you know, he's he's basically like a magic cat because he can basically produce anything uh, as needed as a situation warrants, right? Um, and so they go on adventures through time and space and stuff like that. But a, a lot of time it's adventures in the backyard with the bully kids and 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 things of that nature. So it didn't have that collectible aspect of we got to catch them all that Pokemon came out with and then every other show, Digimon or multi-mon or whatever mon it was digimon i was thinking about because i remember i i did a small i, I did a short internship at a school many years ago and they, they were and they they were trading collector's cards but it wasn't doramon it was digimon at that point yeah uh, that's yeah. what i was remembering okay uh good because <laughs> it's like mom i gotta catch them all at the toy store <laughs> and not just in front of my screen uh, and, and then you got the dam app uh, a few years ago where people were co- collecting them all out in the real world with the Pokemon Go and shit like that. So anyway, this is us signing off. Thank you everybody for listening to this anime episode. We're going down uh, a historical route, but we might make a big leap to the 80s because as I said, I, I, I do have it in me to do like the first original video animation that, that would make us uh, reached the point of uh, I think it's four episode two hours long in total or three hours long in total OVA called Dallas which is a science fiction dramatic action piece uh, that was co-directed by Mamoru Oshii and I think that there's a lot of context to be had there because uh, there's research on the internet, of course. But for the US DVD release, they took a, uh, a retrospective uh, documentary they did for Japanese DVD and they put that on the US DVD and fully subtitled. So you get a neat little view of how the original video animation was born and how that started to take off. And that, that was a crucial part of uh, how anime was delivered uh, to us all in the 80s and 90s, literally on video. So uh, that's um, perhaps an angle we will revisit um, 
in the future. So uh, Japanophile is not exclusively anime, but uh, I, I had an itch uh, to go back to old school anime, and we, we've certainly done so two episodes in a row with uh, the oldest of uh, the anime features uh, that we've uh, ever covered on this show from 45 and 58 respectively so we'll see what happens but uh, in the meantime i've been kenobi with me to explore uh, this 1958 piece and i'm very grateful he did so was paul fox of the east green west screen podcast so take us out and say goodbye yes indeed and thank you for having me and bye bye ポコポンピョイ、太鼓はウェン、おいらはポン、僕はピョイ、ポコポンピョイ。そこでそいつが歌になる、ポコポンピョイ、ポコポンピョイ。太鼓はウェン、おいらはポン、僕はピョイ、